Hello, welcome to the Bauhaus Wife podcast. This is episode number three, and I'm Yolanda Clark, the author of the Bauhaus Wife blog at www.bauhauswife.com, and that is www.bauhauswife.com. And that's where I write about motherhood, pregnancy, free birth, holistic health, nourishment, homeschooling, feminism, family, spirit, outrageousness, and dissent. I'm also a full-spectrum home birth doula, or home birth witness, or birth consultant, but definitely not a midwife. And I've been working in the birth industry for just about over 10 years. And I work face-to-face with families who've chosen home birth here in New Brunswick. And I also do phone and Skype consultations with mothers and families all over the world. And I'm so excited to announce my new program called the Free Birth Freedom Sessions. The Free Birth Freedom Sessions is a program for women who are either exploring or committed to home birth or free birth. And I've designed it to give mothers the mental, emotional, and practical tools to shift fears around home birth and to plan your free birth or home birth with clarity and confidence. You can get more information about this program through the Work With Me section on my website. And again, that's www.bahousewife.com. And if you're new to the idea of free birth, or if you're interested in my own philosophy around birth, I have a lovely and thought-provoking little book called The Bauhaus Wife Recipe Book for an Ecstatic Autonomous Physiological Home Birth, which is a short guide to the very first five steps in creating the euphoric independent birth that you want. In it, I talk about the fact that in my experience, there really is a formula when it comes to having a powerful and peaceful pregnancy and to planning and implementing the perfect birth outside the hospital. Um, nothing in life is foolproof, but there's certainly a fairly predictable set of choices that can lead primarily most often to the kind of birth that you might want. So I gave birth to all of my own children at home and I can guarantee that it's very possible to go about giving birth with confidence. And my book is free, so you can go ahead and download it from my website. And I'm also working on a longer course for women who are interested in learning the business and practice of becoming an independent, full-spectrum home birth doula. And this will include the philosophy and practicalities of working with mothers and families as an independent birth worker, how to approach and structure meetings prenatally, how to support mothers and fathers during the birth process, how to notice complications and what to do as a non-medical birth witness, keeping birth safe, equipment you might need for a doula kit, legalities, how to get clients, how to set up an effective website without spending a lot of money, and basically everything that I know about creating a supportive grassroots independent birth community where you live, and also supporting yourself financially while doing it. Many women do not realize that being a doula is not a regulated practice and that no specific licenses or certifications are required. And I would really love to see more independent birth attendants practicing all over Canada. So I'll be finishing up the development of this course over the next few weeks and months, and I'll be offering it with an in-person component here in New Brunswick, but also online for those who don't live in the area. So if you have more questions about any of this, you can feel free to email me at sasamat.clark at gmail.com. That's S-A-S-A-M-A-T dot C-L-A-R-K 
at gmail.com. And if you're interested in meeting me in person and lots of other amazing women who give birth at home in New Brunswick, I host the Fredericton Home Birth Network monthly meetings for anyone who wants to explore the home birth possibilities here in NB. Everyone is welcome to the meetings, and the next meeting will take place on March 31st at Isaac's Way Restaurant in downtown Fredericton. And this month's meeting will involve, of course, lots of birth talk, but we're also going to be sharing each other's small businesses this month because there are so many amazing women in our group who run small businesses, either making products or offering wonderful services. So this would be a great meeting to come to to network and learn more about what our members are doing business-wise in the community. And also, please join our Fredericton Home Birth Network Facebook group as well for more information ongoing. And I am also a visual artist. I make pottery primarily, but also paintings. So you can check out my artwork at www.yolandanorrisclark.com. So that's Yolanda with an E and Clark with no E. Um, Y-O-L-A-N-D-E-N-O-R-R-I-S-C-L-A-R-K.com. And I'm super excited because I have an upcoming solo exhibition of large, colorful, gilded vessels, mostly in porcelain, but some stoneware also. And uh, these works are all made on the kick wheel using a coil and throw method. So they're all fairly large and pretty bombastic and colorful. So the show is called Chrysalids, and it will be opening on May 13th, that's Friday the 13th, woo, at the uh, Buckland Merrifield Art Gallery in St. John, New Brunswick. And that date, Friday the 13th, also happens to fall on the St. John Art Crawl, so it should be a really great evening to be out and about in Uptown St. John. And finally, I have a beautiful little skincare company called Flora and Fauna Apothecary. I make one product, a skin elixir made from primarily certified organic and fairly traded botanical oils with absolutely no fillers or low-quality carrier oils. And I source all of the ingredients from the most reputable producers that I can find. And these ingredients include some really gorgeous stuff like red raspberry oil, which is ultra-light, very non-greasy, and has an, a natural SPF factor of between 20 and 25. Red raspberry oil is one of my favorite oils. And in addition to its sun protective properties, it's highly regenerative, anti-inflammatory, and can actually help repair UV damage. And the Flora and Fauna Skin Elixir also contains frankincense oil, which can tone and protect the skin, macadamia nut oil, high in palmitoleic acid, a fatty acid found naturally in sebum, which becomes depleted in aging skin, and sea buckthorn oil, which is amazingly reparative, reparative and reduces roughness, among other fantastic ingredients. I started making this oil several years ago because I really couldn't find a product that was satisfactory to me and that lived up to my pretty high standards. So even the very expensive skin oils that I tried often turned out to be made up mostly of things like sweet almond oil, which is fine, but not my favorite. It's a little bit greasy or some of these other oils were kind of smelly or had additives that I didn't want absorbing into my body. So I'm really proud of flora and fauna and I use it day and night and in between and it's really truly the only thing that I put on my face. I even use it as a kind of an oil cleanser and I really love that it's good enough to eat and that I can safely use it on my children's skin, which I do certainly mostly in the summer as an alternative to sunscreen. And uh, you can check out the Flora and Fauna website 
at www.florafauna.ca. So that's F-L-O-R-A-F-A-U-N-A dot C-A. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about the most exciting event coming up this summer in New Brunswick, and that is the NB Women's Summit. The summit is a three-day residential retreat right on the edge of one of the most gorgeous beaches near the resort town of Shediac, New Brunswick. The cost of the weekend includes camping on-site in your own tent or in one of the beautiful yurts that will be set up. And it also includes admission to the many workshops that will be taught by amazing women leaders from our community and beyond on topics ranging from birth to breastfeeding to aging to artwork to yoga, parenting, and pretty much everything and anything that relates to women's lives. All of the meals are included and they're made from delectable organic and local ingredients. And I can really say very honestly that this event has been the highlight of my summer for the past few years. I encourage everyone to attend if you possibly can. And it's a very accessible event as well. The cost of the weekend is very reasonable compared with similar retreats and programs. And it will run you less than $300 for everything included. The price has yet to be confirmed in specificity, but it's very affordable. Uh, last year, our keynote speaker was midwife Sister Morningstar, who was absolutely wonderful in every way and who I now count as a friend and a teacher. And uh, we are just about to solidify the roster of speakers for this year, so we'll be announcing that very soon. And uh, I'm also going to be leading a workshop or two myself. So you can get more information about last year's summit uh, by checking out the website at www womensummit.org. Now the spelling of that website is w-o-m-y-n-s-s-u-m-m-i-t.org. <clears throat> and right now it's still yeah, last year's site that's up, but the new website will be up and running very, very shortly. Um, and in a couple of weeks, I'll be doing a podcast interview with the Genius Leader behind the New Brunswick Women's Summit, and really the genius leader behind the New Brunswick Home Birth Movement, and that is birth, breastfeeding, and parenting consultant and expert Natalie Arsenault. Oh, Natalie is located in Moncton, and she is an absolutely incredible person, just a wealth of information and inspiration, and I cannot wait to talk to her on this podcast very soon. Now, last week, I aired the first installment of this two-part series on gender and aggression, of which this is the second episode. During that first podcast, I talked a lot about how we and our children are socialized into viewing life through a gendered lens. The central point of much of what I discussed last time was that there are very different expectations when it comes to the levels of so-called aggression that are acceptable in girls versus boys. And there's also a real discrepancy between boys and girls when it comes to the kind of behavior that is even labeled aggression. I gave the example of the way that boys' mannerisms and reactions are often simply seen as normal or boyish, though when girls display that same tone, they're often categorized as aggressive. Interestingly, one of the definitions of the word aggression that I've come across is the forceful and sometimes overly assertive pursuit of one's aims and interests. 
If we recognize that in a gendered society, male power and dominance is normalized, it follows that even a relatively mild display of assertiveness in pursuit of one's aims and interests from a female child might be seen as aggressive rather than simply as the confidence that someone with leadership qualities might possess. I know that when I was a little girl child, my own confidence was certainly interpreted as aggression in large part, and by the time I reached adolescence, I'd been socialized to such an extent that I'd adopted many self-effacing behaviors, and I still struggle at times with self-doubt and a lack of self-confidence, as so many women do. Although, paradoxically, I also frequently find myself in situations in which Others are taken aback by my propensity for speaking or writing my mind unreservedly, which of course is a stereotypically masculine trait. As I pointed out during last week's podcast, every single one of us is actually gender fluid. That said, when it comes to young children and their interactions with each other and with even younger kids and babies or siblings and even adults, most parents would like to see their children, male and female, being generous and peaceful and loving and kind towards others. It is extremely dismaying for all parents, but especially new ones, <coughs> to witness their children harming others or displaying belligerence. So today I want to talk not only about strategies that I've noticed really work in a positive way in terms of helping our children to deal with powerful emotions like anger and frustration that often manifest as aggression, but also ways in which we can work at least a little bit towards thwarting gender for the sake of our kids, especially as gender relates to, ag to aggression. Especially as gender relates to aggression. And as I discussed again last week, to my mind, this is done most effectively not by denying the reality of sex differences or by pretending gender doesn't exist as the powerful socializing force that it certainly is, but by actively giving, giving our children examples of and ways to express care and compassion and gentleness as boys and girls, and to simultaneously actively, actively cultivate a calm, grounded, and authentic form of self-confidence and strength and power, and foster these behaviors, gentleness and self-confidence, as normal and healthy for everyone, regardless of our sex. Now, there is a very important distinction to be made between ways of parenting that may seem to work in the moment versus approaching our kids' behavior with a long view. For example, distractions, rewards, punishments, threats, intimidation, and the like do often work to immediately curtail behavior that we find unacceptable in that moment. But as parents, most of us can recognize that these responses do not address the root motivations that lead to the unwanted behaviors. They do not help our children develop an understanding of the relationship dynamics that their behaviors are triggered by or that these behaviors result in, nor do these approaches allow our children to cultivate an intrinsic desire themselves to be sociable, to be part of their family or friend unit or group, or to connect with other people. And finally, of course, many of these heavy-handed ways of dealing with our kids' undesirable behavior are specifically harmful to our children's psychological development, not to mention being examples, often, of exactly the behaviors we're trying to discourage in our kids. So many of us were parented ourselves with distraction, rewards, punishments, threats, intimidation, etc., and so it's very difficult for us to see that these ways are actually counterproductive and harmful. 
And it's understandable that because most of us do love our own parents, we all have a tendency to rationalize the kind of experiences we were exposed to as kids. Seeing our childhoods for what they were and acknowledging that perhaps harm was in fact done to us can feel not only like an indictment of our parents, but an admission that we ourselves are flawed. But I do think that part of the process of growing up is to be able to see our own lives clearly in order to be able to forgive if necessary and move on. As a mother myself, I've really begun to think deeply about parenting with a long view to my children's overall development. And in order to keep the long view in focus, I found it helpful to continually remind myself of what I want, to ask, what am I really going for as a parent? What is my objective as a mother in the long term? So it's not just about how the heck do I get my kid to, you know, deal with this or that or stop doing this or that right in the moment. It's what is my long term objective? And the answer to that question for me is that I want to raise my children to be compassionate, confident, kind, resourceful, in possession of leadership abilities, curious, engaged, responsible, and productive, among other things. <laughs> and I can see very clearly, as I'm sure most parents can, that my children are all very different, and they all have certain strengths and abilities in some of these areas, and they also need additional guidance and help in other areas. And while there may be tweaks in terms of my response, depending on the particular kid in general, my real focus as a parent should really be on myself. My work as a mother is to attempt, anyway, to be a continuous example myself in each moment of that compassion, confidence, leadership, engagement, responsibility, etc. that I'm hoping to eventually see in my adult children. And I think we can all understand that it's not enough to teach our children how to be good people. We as parents must really embody the actions, the speech, and somehow the spirit of who we want our children to be, which is absolutely a tall order. As I touched on earlier, even the word aggression is a very loaded term. It's not neutral. And just remembering that has been useful for me as a parent when interpreting and responding to my children's behavior. Another definition of the word aggression is as follows, hostile or violent behavior or attitudes towards another, readiness to attack or confront, the action of attacking without provocation, especially in beginning a quarrel or war. Now, I don't really think this definition applies to the behavior of any child under the age of, say, three or four. Very young children are rarely consciously motivated to actively do harm to another, and even when it comes to older children, I do believe that it is the case that a child's behavior is always an expression of needs, perhaps especially a behavior that is violent, antisocial, and particularly aggressive is a clear sign that the child is missing something in their emotional or possibly their physical lives that's causing an undue level of frustration. I would actually go so far as to argue that violent and criminal behavior in adults is almost always evidence of deep needs left unmet, often stemming from adverse childhood experiences or deprivation. Now, this is not a justification or an excuse for violent or criminal behavior, but it is an explanation and I think a route to understanding. I have a lot of ambivalent feelings about our justice system, and that's a conversation for another day, but 
When it comes to kids of all ages, even into the teenage years, I think the first step in dealing compassionately and constructively with aggressive behavior is to really approach the issue from the get-go with the assumption that this behavior stems from unmet needs rather than malice. I recently read an excellent book on coaching called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Stanier. It's a book specifically about executive coaching, but in it, Stanier writes that, quote, recognizing the need gives you a better understanding of how you might best address the want. Now, this may sound like a fairly obvious concept, but I found it quietly insightful, especially when applied to young kids. So when we're confronted with a situation in which a small child, say a three or four-year-old, has hit another small child on the head, it could be that their immediate want is the toy that the other kid is holding. Now, again, I need to be clear that it is important to never condone violence or physical harm or aggression, but that it's absolutely possible to inspire self-discipline in our children and to diffuse conflict peacefully without excusing or disregarding the unacceptable behavior. And I think that this is done by separating in our own minds first and then articulating this for the child, the distinction between their wants and the underlying need that they're expressing, albeit in an unacceptable way. So if we go back to the kid who hits the other kid on the head over a toy, that child may want the toy in that moment, but it's also obvious to us as the parent or the responsible adult that the issue really isn't the toy. The child doesn't actually need that toy, and what they may be needing is a nap or some food or some attention. So what I try to do in this kind of situation is as follows. First, the violence has to be stopped immediately. So when it comes to little kids, I will physically get in between both children as gently and as peacefully as possible. I'll just situate my body between them, and if necessary, I'll put my hand on the hands of the child who's hitting, and I'll just attempt to diffuse the situation while preventing any further harm. Then I'll quickly check in with the child who's been hit. If they're crying, they need to be comforted and reassured. Most often, the child isn't physically hurt or really harmed, but their feelings are certainly deeply wounded and they're outraged. So I'll say to that child, I'm so sorry that Felix hit you, Treva. Hitting hurts, and it's not acceptable. I'm going to do my best to keep you safe, and I'm going to go and talk to Felix right now. Does that sound okay for you? Usually, the child will nod, and I'll set them up with a book or an interesting object while I go and address child B. <laughs> I was going to use terms, the terms victim and perpetrator here just for the sake of clarity, although language and words really do carry so much depth of meaning in this sort of situation. I'm, I'm actually actively rerouting my own tendency to see victims and perpetrators in these situations, so or to, to lay blame, so... I'll just use child A and child B. <laughs> now, it often only takes a few seconds to settle the child who's feeling victimized because what they generally need more than anything is simply for their feelings to be validated. And this may sound counterintuitive, but I think the primary focus of my energy as a parent or a caregiver in this sort of conflict situation needs to really go towards the child who's showing the so-called aggression. Because as cliched as this sounds, acts of violence or aggression from young kids truly are a cry for help. 
So after settling the child who's been hurt, I'll then approach the child who's displayed the violence and I'll either gather them in my arms or reach out for their hand or just sit next to them for a moment. If they're still showing aggression, I might say to them, I'm not going to let you hit Treva and I'm not going to let you hit me. I understand how you feel and I can tell you're frustrated. But I might not even mention their specific behavior, the hitting, at that point. Because my kids, and most kids, do know that hitting is wrong. That's why they're doing it. They're trying to make a statement about their wants and needs not being met. They're trying to express their anger and frustration, and and often they're wanting a reaction. So I think, for the most part, they already understand that the behavior is unacceptable. So we don't really need to belabor that point. So what I might do is just sit with them for a moment and then say, it seems to me that you were very frustrated with Treva. And usually they'll say, yes, 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 I was so frustrated. She had the toy I wanted and she wasn't giving it to me and I was so angry. And at that point, I can validate their experience and their emotions. So I'll say, yes, I understand completely how you feel. Sometimes I get frustrated too and it's very, very difficult And I even sometimes feel like hitting. So I really get you and I hear you. Now, I can't let you hit because hitting hurts other people. But if you're feeling frustrated again, you can come to me and you can tell me all about it and I'll listen to you and I'll help you. And usually this is acceptable to them, you know, in theory anyways. But I might also say to them, if I've noticed some additional information from their behavior, or if this is a pattern or a recognizable trigger that has caused the situation, I might say, I wonder if maybe you're feeling tired. Because when I get tired, I get very grumpy and impatient with other people. So this is a question that I'm asking them about their underlying needs, rather than their want, which was the toy. Now, I really don't ever want to say to a child, I can tell you're tired, or I can see that you're tired, because no one ever wants to be told by someone else how they feel. I can't stand that myself as an adult, and I couldn't stand it as a kid, and I I did find it and still do find it very condescending. So I really want to honor this child and give them space to express their emotions. I want them to see that I'm trying to empathize with them and that I, that I do empathize with them and that I really get them and that I'm on their side. But I don't want to make assumptions about what's going on for them. So if their response to my guess about being tired is, no, I'm not tired, then even if I genuinely believe that they are absolutely tired, even if I know that they are tired, even if I, you know, I'm sure they're tired, it's still okay and actually essential for me to trust what they're saying and to believe them and to take them at their word. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay, you're not tired. I hear you. Would you like to read a book with me in Treva? So this is offering them an activity that keeps both children safe because I'm there and also allows them the space to eventually decide for themselves if they're tired or not. Or not. And it's a segue to a different part of the day. I'm changing the tone. I might offer a snack or whatever. So the key is really in validating their feelings and empathizing with them, letting them know that I'm on their side while simultaneously making it clear that I do not accept or condone their actions, but doing so 
in such a subtle way that what they perceive most significantly about the exchange is the love that I have for them rather than condemnation. And then finally, moving on from the incident quickly, not dwelling on the incident, not bringing the incident up again later in the day, not punishing the child, just quickly and as seamlessly as possible, getting everyone back on the same page. And that involves both kids in the equation as well, if there's a conflict between two children. I really want both children to come away from this experience knowing that they're respected, knowing that they've been heard, knowing that they feel that their feelings are valid, and also feeling that I am someone that they can trust. Now, one response that is so common, but that I think is not helpful in situations like these, is distraction. When we simply distract a young child who's angry and displaying aggression, we're first of all underestimating their capacity for comprehending what's going on. Even the youngest children can be gently made aware of the reality that their behavior may not be acceptable. I think distraction is kind of an insult to the intelligence of children and that it's condescending as well. Furthermore, when we distract a child, we're missing out on an opportunity to practice ourselves, our ability to empathize with everyone involved and to understand the more refined emotional aspects of the situation. And we're missing out on an opportunity to model that understanding to our children or that desire to understand to our children. And we're missing out on an opportunity to connect in a really profound way with our kids because when our children feel truly loved and connected with us, even in times of conflict, especially in times of conflict, we are really building this immense foundation of trust. And I think it is that foundation of trust and connection that both we as parents and our children will be drawing on in the years to come as our kids enter adolescence and are dealing with the complexities of that stage of life. I really want my kids to feel safe talking to me about their complicated emotions and bringing their difficult situations to me. It's the sense of connection and trust that creates real discipline. The etymology of the word discipline is from the Latin and refers to a follower or a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. So it is absolutely true that as a parent, I want my children to be my disciples, my students, my adherents, my admirers. But this discipline cannot be engendered through force or punishment or reward. It truly has to be inspired in our children through our own behavior. And this does indeed mean that there's a ton of pressure on us to be examples to our kids of exactly those values that we want to instill, that kindness, compassion, measure, gentleness, purpose, productivity, responsibility. And while this is a difficult thing to maintain for every parent, it's especially hard, again, for the adults who may not have had themselves stellar examples of these qualities in our own parenting. And I think this is really where things get tricky and where parents often fall back on suboptimal ways of responding, especially when things get stressful, when we ourselves are triggered by exhaustion or hunger or stress, financial worry, etc. Now, I am far, far from being a perfect parent. And, uh, you know, my weakness is is in showing my temper. So I find it very difficult not to show my temper, not to yell at my kids when they trigger me. I grew up in a family where 
Yelling was pretty common, and it really saddens me to admit that it's almost a reflex for me to yell if I see one kid hitting the other, especially before dinner, especially if I'm tired, especially if I'm at the end of my tether. So I'm still working on holding myself with that same sense of compassion that I hold my kids and gently retraining my own behavior and my reactions. And and I do mess up quite a bit, but I'm getting a little bit better slowly at being able to quickly pull myself back from the precipice into the moment. Um, and of course, yelling is exactly an example, again, of the kind of aggressive behavior that I don't want my children to be displaying. So I absolutely recognize it as terribly counterproductive. Um, and, you know, when I mess up, which I, I do every day, <laughs> um, you know, I try again not to um, really dwell on getting sort of maudlin and melodramatic and, you know, apologizing profusely to my kids. I will, you know, try to calm myself down as quickly as possible and I'll just say, whoa, you know, I really, I really made a mistake there and uh, I'm just going to take a moment. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to reset myself and um, let's try that again. So, you know, I think that there's always room for lots and lots of forgiveness from both sides when we're parents and dealing with our kids. Now, other parents may have grown up in a family situation with a very different dynamic, one in which bribes and punishments maybe were normal. So similar to distraction, bribing or rewarding our kids is problematic in many ways. So first of all, it cultivates an expectation for extrinsic rewards for behavior that one hopes will simply be seen, at least eventually, as the standard rather than anything that deserves a claim or comment. I want my children to develop the strength of character that will allow them to do the right thing in situations where no one will ever know, and to choose the right path in situations where perhaps the wrong or the unethical course of action is the most immediately attractive. I want my kids to understand from a young age that doing the right thing is not always pleasurable or self-aggrandizing. I want them to know that it is actually that inner feeling of peace and rightness that is the reward for doing good, and that, that this is a feeling that's created within ourselves, independent of external forces. So I don't reward my children for anything, really. Not for learning the, to use the toilet successfully, or for doing chores, not for putting their rooms away etc. The reward for cleaning their room is having a clean room. <laughs> the reward for using the toilet is not having to feel wetness and poop in their pants. The reward for not hitting one's siblings is being able to live in a peaceful family and having positive relationships. So in my view, these are very powerful rewards, but of course they aren't rewards and I don't frame them as rewards. I just frame them as part of our family culture. And they are, in fact, natural consequences. In terms of unwanted behavior, the, the issue of consequences is quite fraught when it comes to kind of parenting approaches or philosophies. I am actually a big believer in the power of natural consequences, which there seems to be a lot of confusion over. A, a natural consequence is simply that. Gravity, loss, entropy, mold. <laughs> These are examples of natural consequences. So if a child breaks an object, the natural consequence is that the object is broken. 
it is not a natural consequence that the child must clean the mess up or that we insist that the child clean the mess up. There is no universal requirement for anyone to clean any mess up ever. It's possible, in the world of reality, for the broken glass to stay sitting on the kitchen floor for the next week or more. The object is broken, and the breakage is the consequence. I would, of course, love for the child to pick up the mess, and I do want to raise responsible adults who don't think twice about cleaning up after themselves. So my response in a situation like that would be, okay, the cup broke. Here's the dustpan. I'll get the broom. I'll sweep the pieces up and you can pop them into the garbage. There's no negotiation. I'm not asking if the child will please help to clean up. It's just my expectation that that's what's going to happen. So there's no, you broke the cup. Now you need to clean it up. There's just the seamless flow of this is what we do. And if the kid does object to cleaning up the mess or objects to assisting in cleaning up, then what I've found is the very best and easiest response, the response most exemplary of the kind of compassion and leadership that I want my children to display as adults, the response that really, to my mind, does hit on that long view of parenting is for me to simply clean the mess up myself, swiftly and efficiently, without saying one more word about it. In doing that, I'm giving the child an example of not making a big deal about things that don't matter. I'm showing the child that cleaning up is a priority over arguing about cleaning up. I'm showing the child an example of real leadership. And I'm showing the child an example of taking the high road and acting with integrity, of taking responsibility for something that isn't really my responsibility, but that doesn't need to be turned into a fight. I'm also showing the kid that there was really no reason for them not to help me because I did it without a fuss. I did it without complaint. So it must be the case that cleaning up messes is not an unpleasant task. That's the example that I'm giving them. It's just something that we do. No big deal. Now, I see so many parents of young children making an issue of so-called natural consequences, like being sent to their rooms for hitting or being forced to clean up a mess that they've made, as though these are natural consequences. So these punishments are being presented as natural consequences. But if we're focused on the long view, what becomes evident is that the only natural consequence of imposing these sorts of punishments on our children is that our kids will become resentful and even less inclined to play well with others or to respect us as leaders. Now, I started off talking about gender, and I want to try to tie gender into all that I've said here so far, however tenuously. I did point out in the previous podcast that we are all subject to gender because it permeates all areas of society and culture. But I do think that we can make small inroads as individuals and as families by simply being aware of how gender shapes us and of how we interpret our children's behavior. Um, And I think that apart from attempting in our adult relationships to model, especially as women, confidence, assurance, boldness, strength, and self-possession, as well as gentleness and love, and for men and fathers to do the same, I think it's also important to gatekeep media for as long as we can. 
So television, movies, and video games often unfortunately portray violence and aggression as cool and as especially masculine traits. So I really do try, without much success maybe, but I do try to limit my children's exposure to this kind of media, but also to discuss what they have been exposed to because my children definitely do not live in a bubble. Um, so I really try to discuss what they've been exposed to as openly as I can and to impart my opinion and my convictions in a vibrant, energetic, interested way and to really create debate around all of this stuff so that I'm not just saying to them that I find this or that show mo or movie distasteful, but why I find it so and to encourage my kids to talk to me about what they think and to make a practice of discussing these sometimes difficult and sensitive topics as openly and really as entertainingly as possible. And finally, I can't emphasize enough the importance of approaching discipline not as a distinct event that takes place after our kids have done something that we find displeasing, but as a positive, wholesome, continuous practice that is nurturing and loving and that really goes both ways. So practicing self-discipline ourselves. And um, I really do believe that this can go such a long way towards dismantling not only the behaviors that we find unwelcome, but that also this approach can thwart many of those gendered expectations that society places on our kids' behavior. It's so important to see, on one hand, that each child is a unique and distinct individual, but also, on the other hand, that we really can't go wrong with anybody if we respond to the underlying needs that a person is expressing when they re resort to aggressive behavior among one another, rather than reacting to their behavior with threats, punishments, ultimatums, or an escalation of aggression. To conclude, I want to mention one of the parenting books that I found most helpful when it comes to resolving all sorts of conflict, and that is the book titled Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves by Naomi Aldort. Now, the entire book is well worth reading, um, but in particular, Aldort's salve formula is brilliant, and it's helped me so, so much over the years. According to Aldort, this formula for helping our children through conf conflict is based on the work of Byron Katie, also highly recommended. And the essence of it is that salve is an acronym for first separating ourselves emotionally from our ch child's behaviors. That would be the S, obviously. So standing back from our own emotional entanglement with the situation is the separation. And then A, putting our attention on the child and where they are. So really kind of focusing on where that kid is, not on our upset or the stress that we're feeling, but on the child. And then L, listening to the child and really tuning in in a deep way to what is really going on for that child. And then V, validating the child's experience without judgment, without drama, without fanfare. And then E, empowering the child to find a solution to their issue that works for everybody. Now, this is a total oversimplification, but um, I do encourage everyone to check out that book, Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves. It's truly brilliant, and it sort of synthesizes or expands on, rather, um, a lot of the ideas that I've talked about in this podcast today. So there we go. As usual, I feel like there's so much that I haven't said on this topic, but 
that's all for now and maybe more later. But in the coming weeks, I will be talking in this podcast about tongue ties, about homeschooling, and I'll finally be getting to birth, which of course is my main passion. And also hopefully some interviews with some other fabulous women that I'm really looking forward to doing. So there we go. I hope you have a great week and thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.